Hi, if you're a fan of Nonprofit Lowdown, you might be interested in my weekly free newsletter where I send out weekly inspiration for fundraising, notices about any upcoming events that I'm doing, and a cute dog picture. So check it out at riawong.com, R-A-G-A-W-O-N-G.com. Welcome to Nonprofit Lowdown. I'm your host, Ria Wong. Hey, podcast listeners, it's Ria Wong once again with Nonprofit Lowdown. Today, I am speaking with my friend and guest, and we haven't spoken in a long time and hung out in real life, but my friend Jess Cavanero, who's a partner at Siege Change Capital Partners, and we are talking today about nonprofit mergers and acquisitions, which is not a topic that a lot of us talk about, but is certainly very relevant. So welcome, Jess. Thank you, Ria. It's so delighted to be here. Avid listener, first-time guest. Oh, well, welcome, welcome. So Jess, before we jump into the topic at hand, which I know is a hot one, tell us a little bit about yourself and your nonprofit journey. Particularly, I, I want to talk about how perhaps broke your parents' heart by not being a doctor. <laughs> Unfortunately, broken their heart a couple of times. First, by not being a doctor. Second, 10 years ago, when I told them that I was leaving investment banking to work at a nonprofit they almost threw me out of the family. But just some context. I grew up with my brother behind the counter of my parents' deli in Jamaica, Queens in the 80s. Violence, danger, crime, all part of everyday life. Racism. My mom is Chinese, so we just lived with this. It was normalized. We leaned into education, hard work, and got really lucky. We were able to make the most of those opportunities. And so it's really the lessons from that period of life are always at my fingertips. I believe that people are not defined by their situations. I believe that everyone should have access to opportunities and the resources to make them count. And for me, that starts with strong nonprofits. And so for the last 10 years, I've been able to work with nonprofit leaders in New York City and across the country to help them think about how they run their businesses, how they deliver their programs, and change themselves in ways where they can uplift communities in better ways. I've been able to do the same thing with foundations. So at Sea Change, I manage our grant making program. I run our consulting business, which is mostly pro bono, occasionally paid, where we answer questions around things that need spreadsheets and financial analysis to help decision making. And then I share what I learned through published reports. But my real area of expertise is in nonprofit MA, where I've been a grant maker for the last 10 years. Okay, so much there. We're going to dig into it. So I love that you talk about the business of nonprofit because you know I'm all about that and I'm all about that money. But talk to us a little bit about the concept of mergers and acquisitions, which is not a lot of what we hear in the nonprofit sector, very common in the for-profit, but not so much in nonprofit. Why is that? So I think part of the reason is because it still carries the stigma of failure. Most people think that when you're merging a nonprofit or when you're changing a nonprofit, you're doing so because something terribly wrong has happened and you're just trying to put out the flame. But that's not actually what we've seen. So over the last 10 years, that trend has really shifted where nonprofits are pursuing mergers. And it's not all about mergers, by the way. There's a whole spectrum of partnerships that we should be talking about. But nonprofits are pursuing partnerships as a means to build capacity, to strengthen their organizations, to grow their programs or do their programs better. And I think this is going to be more and more important as we come out of this pandemic and in terms of the staffing crisis to attract and retain really talented people on their teams. 
And so we don't talk about it enough because we're focused on it in times of crisis, but it's really an opportunity to build capacity. I wonder too, Jess, and tell me if this is something that you've heard as well, that often because I think nonprofits are so driven by emotion that sometimes the strategic business decision may not be so clear because we're so driven by our hearts. Is that something you've seen? I think that plays out more with the board than it does with executive directors. Interesting. Yeah. So I think executive directors are always on the lookout for change. When change faces you or when change has happened, good or bad, you ask yourself, should I stay the course? Should I stop what I'm doing? Or should I change the organization by building something either alone or in partnership with someone else? And EDs are just programmed to do that. They're constantly on the lookout. I think board members, they drop in four times a year. They're, step, they're kind of removed, but they come to this work because of personal identity and mission-driven work and because they believe in the special sauce of that nonprofit. And so the tension that you see is really between when the EDs are ready and when board members are ready. Oh, that's so interesting because I would have assumed the other way because I, I think, especially for the board members that come from the corporate environment, being much more comfortable with the concept of mergers, acquisitions, strategic partnerships. But it is interesting that occasionally I said board members come in and I was like, I feel like you've left your like work brain outside the boardroom because you've come in here. But like, I know that you're not using the skills that you have out there in here. Yeah. And sometimes those skills aren't transferable. So there's a whole host of best practices, just practices from the investment banking side that can be a disservice to nonprofit mergers or collaborations because they're played out in the wrong moment in time. So for example, when I talk to board members, the first things out of their mouth tend to be, and this is all, they all come from a good place. We're going to save a bunch of money. We're going to become so much more efficient and we're going to look, our balance sheet is going to look great. And that's not actually how these transactions play out. Most nonprofit, and I'm just talking about mergers now, don't actually wind up saving people meaningful amounts of money. The organizations in our portfolio have only saved one to 11% of their combined budgets. Transactions like this, you wind up actually spending money because you're investing those cost savings in program, in infrastructure, in time and talent. Oh, that's so interesting. All right, we're going to dig into that in a second. But before we get there, can we take a little bit of a 30,000 foot view and talk about the pandemic? So I think we might assume that because of the pandemic and a lot of the challenges that came with it, that we would have seen more mergers and acquisitions. Interestingly, I have known anecdotally that a lot of nonprofits have actually come out of the pandemic quite flush between you know PPP money and increased donations. I'm wondering, what did you see over the pandemic and was it a surprise to you? So I'm going to just, I'm going to own our mistake, my mistake. I got it dead wrong. I was like, oh man, phone's going to be ringing off the hook. We're going to be doing mergers all day long. And that was not the case for exactly the reasons that you described. So PPP, emergency funding, left for the most part, most nonprofits with more financial stability than they had expected. Costs were down. Funding was coming in that was extremely flexible and forgiving. And at the same time, these nonprofits were focused on the immediate task of serving the communities and tending to their staff. 
the dual mission of the nonprofits. They serve their staff as well as the, the communities that they're active in. And so absent that time to really think, we didn't see a ton of mergers. Mergers take months and years to plan. And the best ones are proactively driven as opposed to reactively driven. What we did see were thoughtful partnerships between nonprofits that were looking to quickly build capacity, either by investing in shared technology, organizations that were looking for shared space, shared administration, and a move to fiscal sponsorship. We also, because of this flushness, saw a lot of spinouts. So organizations and programs that were within a parent entity that said, we're big enough now and we're financially stable enough now to finally think about going out on our own, which is totally counter to what I think everyone else expected. That is so interesting. And actually, I think now that we've seen, now that we're moving into a different phase of government funding pulling back, it will be interesting to see what happens. So maybe your, your merger and acquisition hypothesis will play out. Yeah, I think on that point, if history is similar, in 2012 and 2013, five years after we saw the Great Recession play out on the private side, we were feeling it in the nonprofit sector. So with 2023 coming up, where people are starting to get nervous, I think we're in the middle of how this is actually going to shake. And for the next two to three years, we might start seeing some of these mergers, some of these more structural partnerships be grown out of financial need. So it sounds like the nonprofit sector sort of follows the for-profit sector when it comes to the shocks of the economy. I mean, right now, I think everyone is talking about inflation. My ED chat is blowing up around things like salary and retention and how to keep things going. So we'll see what happens. But you mentioned something that I want to get back to. You said that there's a continuum. Can you walk us through the continuum of what, like everything from, you know, strategic partnership all the way to full merger? What are those kind of yeah. key points? Yeah. So let's start left to right. And there's a great slide. So there's something called the sustained collaboration network, which if you're a fundraiser listening to this, you should write down because it's a network of all of the funders who actually make grants to support this work. So EDs, development Wait, people. Repeat, repeat that again. Let's write it's this down, everyone. Yeah, the Sustained Collaboration Network. And if you go there, you'll see the funds that C-Change manages. You'll see funds in LA. There's one in Chicago that's not on there, but it should be. Dallas, Pittsburgh. So you should just know this, but there's a great slide on that page where they show the continuum of the types of partnerships that nonprofits can engage in. And so it's everything from networks to coalitions, which are loose, you know, there's no documentation to support it. You just agree to do something together for a period of time in the hopes of achieving a specific goal. That's not the stuff that we're talking about here, right? That's stuff that you just kind of do as a good citizen trying to do good work in the community. What we're really talking about are things where nonprofits are working together to change how they do their business or how they deliver their programs fiscal sponsorships, joint programs, joint ventures, sometimes divestments and program tradings. There was a great deal that we did where an organization who did mental health for 10 years decided that they were losing too much money, but they didn't want that mental health clinic to leave the community. So they basically gave it to an agency that did it much better that was right next door. And then you start to get to structural changes, parent subsidiary relationships, 
nonprofit mergers, divestments, and sometimes bankruptcy and wind down. Got it. That's super helpful. So let's talk about the nitty gritty. When do you think that, like, what are some of the signs that a nonprofit should start to be thinking about a merger? And I, what you said is to be proactive is important. So like, how do we proactively read the tea leaves such that we're not caught in the back foot when we're like, oh, this is an inevitability? I'm sure if you Google nonprofit merger readiness assessment, you'll get something like an airport magazine quiz that says, here are the 14 questions to answer to see if you're ready for love, if you're ready for murder. I like to I call it the Cosmo quizzes. <laughs> right. It's a Cosmo quiz. I don't think that's how people actually work though. So let's talk about what motivates people who call me. Three basic categories. There's the financial piece, which is pretty obvious. Funding is going to grow or funding has, is going to shrink or has already shrunk and you need to do something about it. You want to grow your program. You want to expand it. You want to grow into a new geography or you want to build capacity. You want to bring new team members on. You want to develop new foundation relationships. You're solving for succession. So finance, program slash geography, capacity with succession and people, but also technology and real hard, hard infrastructure under there. And so there are changes that can happen across all those categories. And I think it's helpful when people say, okay, there's an opportunity that I see. I serve elementary school students and I serve high school students, but there's an opportunity for me to serve middle school students. Do I want to build that myself or could I do that better with a partner organization? And so when that comes up, just asking yourself the question, does it make sense to partner here or do I want to build it internally is really kind of the lever to pull. And I think if you start thinking that way, then you won't be tied to this. Okay, once a year, we're going to evaluate whether or not a merger makes sense. And it just starts to become practice. So let's talk about the other side of that coin. What about acquisition? Because I, I'm much less familiar and I haven't seen as many examples of what it would look like to acquire a partner. Yeah, it's so interesting that you asked that at this moment in time, because there are some nonprofits who came out of this period in the pandemic with so much extra cash because they were able to really shrink down to just their essential costs and had so much emergency funding come in that they were like, this is a good opportunity to grow. And so to prepare yourself for a partnership, whether you're going to acquire something or whether you're assessing another organization would make a good partner, I ask people to write the word maker in capital letters on a piece of paper and really start with, okay, what is our mission? What do we do? How does that impact our culture? And how does that impact how we measure success? And I know that seems so basic, but let's look at ed tech, for example. In an ed tech boardroom, some people might say, we measure success by the number of classrooms that use our technology. And other board members might say, no, 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 we measure success based on the outcomes of our students. There are very different cultural pieces that bleed out of that core definition of success. And that drives how the entire organization functions. What's the mission? Two is what are your assets, right? If you're looking to become part of something, what's your offer? On your balance sheet, hard assets, licensing, reserves, real estate, but also soft. What's the value of your program team? Who's on your board? What are your funder relationships? K is the keepers. And that's the piece where 
I would spend the most time and then keep asking, are you sure? Because it's what do you have to keep in any partnership? What are your must-haves? What are your non-negotiables? And it's a place where executive directors often have different opinions than board members. You've got to reconcile that because the board members are the ultimate decision makers. The E is the event. So what's the challenge or the opportunity or the thing that you're trying to solve for? And it's important to know it up front because you will fill the space that you have. So I've seen discussions last five years. I've seen other, yeah, I've seen others move as quickly as six months. So like know the event and ground it. And I, that leads us to the R, which is what's the reality? How much time do you have to spend working on it? Because you're doing it while also running your nonprofit. It's time off the side of your desk. It's late nights, it's weekends, and it's not fun. How much capacity does your team have? You're going to burn them out. So really know what they can handle. And then how much cash do you have to be able to cover some of the costs that are inherent in getting things done? Okay, wait, can you run the maker again just over? M is for? M is for mission. A is for? Assets. K is for? Keepers. Keepers. That's actually my favorite one. E is for events. And R is for reality. Reality. So okay. I, wrote a, I wrote a paper in November, which I will send to you so you can share, but it's page six of that paper. Excellent. I love a good acronym. So let's talk about this because you've been funder to a witness to many mergers and acquisitions. What are some of the most common mistakes that you see folks making in this process? Oh my gosh. I, I um, know. Where could we be, even begin? Give me like the top five. The top three, because I think they're all related. I think the first thing people do is say, oh my gosh, I'm ready to do this. And they immediately turn outward and start looking at their partners without really grounding themselves in these questions in the maker framework. The analogy that is most often used when people talk about nonprofit mergers is dating and weddings. And it's, it's flawed for many reasons, but I think it holds here. You can't go out looking for a long-term partner if you aren't totally solid in who you are. So the first thing that people trip Good dating advice. Often. You know what? Maybe this spinoff is we'll start a dating show. Continue it's though, a, friend. <laughs> it's a dating show. So one, look inside first. The best partnerships start internally, which is counterintuitive. Two, nonprofit board members who have deep private side experience in this are going to get very enthusiastic very quickly but bring some practices that aren't beneficial to the process, at least in the early days, because they use offsides words like takeover, acquisition, target. Those are things that do not breed trust. They make people feel inherently defensive. And it's not good to say to a potential partner, well, when we take you over, it's all going to be fine. Deals have died over the M word, even the word merger is loaded. So language matters, especially up front. And then the last thing I will say is that it's not about cost savings. Everyone comes to this work thinking about efficiency. I told you the stats from our portfolio. These types of transactions, these types of changes are really about shoring up the program and deepening programmatic impact, building capacity to do more good work. And I think you have to walk into that eyes wide open. And you mentioned at the start of this conversation that you were seeing anywhere from one to 11% of savings. Is that true sort of over the course of time or 
just within that startup year, knowing that there's a lot of upfront costs? So we look at, after we make a grant, we stick with the nonprofits for two years to really see how they do. And so we know that there's a ton of work that goes into planning the wedding, but the real work starts the day the docs are signed. And the most pain occurs in the first three to six months because organizations are really trying to get themselves to work together culturally. And that cultural component, so I said three things, but it's really four. That cultural component cannot be underscored enough. When two organizations are working together, even if they do the same thing in the same place and they have overlapping staff, they might put their yogurt in a different place in the fridge. And that is going to create friction that needs to be addressed early and continually. And it's really two years after that you start to see organizations settle. And it's really two years after that you start to see some of the cost savings really come to bear fruit. That's so funny. In my mind, I'm just thinking about, yeah, when you move in with someone, you're like, do you put your socks there? Is that how you chew? <laughs> but, right. but let's talk about the cultural piece, because I think that is really important. Where I've seen friction with mergers have really been around staff culture, leadership culture. How do we help bridge that gap? Do you recommend having a third party facilitator or mediator? Like, how do we make sure that the marriage is a happy one? Yeah, I think it all starts from the moment that a partnership is a twinkle in your eye. Can you, when you're sitting down, the first thing we ask people to do is, and I promise this is true, sit down and have a dinner with each other. Can we get the executive directors and the boards together to have a dinner where they just talk about the vision of the joint program or organization? And in that meeting, in the back of your mind, think, could I work with this person very closely? And could I have, importantly, very difficult discussions with them? best practice is to bring in a third party to help work through the diligence and really facilitate conversations around some of the challenging topics. But on that cultural piece, where I've seen it go really wrong is when you focus only on the ED and the board integration, because the people that count, the people who are on the ground doing the work are your frontline staff. And they are so nervous. And usually when they join an organization, they do it because they believe in the mission. So they want to know what's going to happen. And so taking the time to really intentionally, when it's right, when the moment is right, right? Like don't advertise a marriage that's not going to happen. Bring them into the conversation and work with them to develop a new joint culture, right? So middle management straight down to the front line is where I would focus. In addition to just shoring up what's going to happen at the board table and with the ETs. Can we talk about that sort of tactically, though? Because I know when you talk about murders, I think there's a lot of fear. There's fear of change. And like, quite honestly, some people may be out of a job, right? As you think about who you're keeping and who, who you're not. Can you talk us through what you've seen as either triumphs or failures when it comes to really managing such that everyone kind of stays calm and stays in the boat? Yeah. Yeah. So let's not pretend that people aren't people, right? As you're moving through this process, as these conversations become more serious, gossip happens. Your staff will find out. Your funders will find out. Your parents will ask you if your job is stable. And the answers to that vary. But what's really important in terms of the staff is to have a plan and to 
be really transparent with how it's going to work and if there are going to be changes in staff to do it all in one day. There is one day where everything happens and then you say, I'm sorry, it's Tuesday. Here it is. Can we, and when you're thinking about your budgets for paying for this, severance is an important item because you need to honor the work of the people who are at the organization. And so if there is a transition, can you offer them a package goodbye? There are funders, we're one of them, that support that cost because it's important. And then once you get to, so if all that happens on Tuesday, you get to Wednesday, you honor the people on Tuesday with a big party, but you get to Wednesday and you say, okay, no more changes. We're going to work together over the course of the next six months. And here's what we need to do. And we're going to check in early and we're going to check in often. And you really, it's, you get up and you check your email, you get up and you think about integration. How is it going to work? And the best organizations that do it have a person who is singularly responsible for that because it just takes so much, so much work. Well, and let's talk about that on the board level too, because I think when you are merging boards, you're not necessarily going to keep everyone. Many board members, I hope all board members are on boards because they love the work. So how have you seen folks navigate the you know, sometimes delicate conversation of loving people out the door? Yeah, yeah. You know, it's so, I'm thinking about a deal where the founder was also the board chair and all that is going on in the back of my mind is, is be mindful of the influencers. And so finding a way to, in this moment of change, people are open actually to a number of different things. And so I've seen organizations come through and institute term limits that perhaps hadn't been previously there, rewrite their bylaws, rewrite their governance structure slightly so that the people who stay on can be part of the transition, can feel ownership and bring stability. Because I think you do need that knowledge transfer moment for a one to two year period when it's a board member. Then you find a reason to have a party and you elegantly say goodbye. I, I cannot underscore enough how much of this is honoring the service that people have done in order to find ways to part as friends. That's so beautiful. And I, I, I wish that yeah, everyone had it so as elegant and clean a goodbye. Two more questions for me before we get to questions from the audience. So question one is funders. So at what point in the process do you think it's appropriate to let funders know? Because as you said, you don't want to talk about a, a marriage if it's not going to happen. But I also know that a lot of funders will feel like they're out of the loop if it's already fully baked. So when would be an appropriate time? Yep. So we bifurcate the world into kind of two phases of this work. So the first phase is let's decide if we want to get engaged. Let's explore if a partnership makes sense. And in that moment, everything is risky and nothing is known. And most organizations choose not to approach outside funders except for sea change or their board members. And so the work that we do there is to help bring in an outside facilitator to help them have honest discussions about what is possible with the intention of after generally six to eight months, getting to a decision of, yes, this is a good idea. Let's move forward into planning or no, doesn't really work for us. We're going to part as friends and we're never going to talk about it. Yeah. And so I think the reason why we're helpful in that moment is our fund enjoys the support of a number of foundations in New York, Altman, Clark, Food Ferris, 
picture, the New York Community Trust, the Aaronson Family Foundation, Lone Star Foundation, which is in Phoenix, they're all committed to confidentiality and they all know that this work requires money to invest in risk. So that's the group that knows this work, that is comfortable with this work, and that is willing to say, okay, here's some money to see if it works out, but if it doesn't, what did you learn? That's great. Where other funders come in is in this second phase where you've decided to, to get married, you're planning the wedding, and there's going to be a moment in time where it's like, okay, we need to raise probably one-time costs of funding to cover one-time costs of like $250,000 plus build the runway so that we've got six to 18 months of cash where we're not worried about also fundraising. That's the moment to start talking to other funders. But I would couch it with, please be sure of your plan. And if in that moment, if sometime between the moment you approach a funder and before you sign the docs, you decide the deal is done and should it move forward, please work together on your end story. We've seen deals where they've approached funders, they raised a bunch of capital, they decided not to move forward with the merger and ran very different stories publicly to their funders, which damaged reputations on all sides. Irrecoverable. Yeah, that messy, messy, messy. It's like a, you know, it's like a celebrity breakup. You post the thing on Instagram. We'll part as friends. We wish each other well. We're consciously uncoupling. Correct. So last question for me before we open it up to the audience. Are there any bright spots that you can tell us or any stories of folks that have done this particularly well that you think we should all know about or something that they did? They're like, oh, yeah, that was actually brilliant and everyone should do that. I mean, there's so many, but let's take another three settlement houses downtown who were all doing primary care and mental health work. And it was deeply core to all of their missions. But two of them were losing a ton of money running their mental health clinics every year. Like so much money, it didn't make any sense. And so they looked around and they said, okay, we can't do the work, but it can't leave this community because there's so much need. Who around here does it well? And so they went to the part to another organization down the block who was looking to grow their mental health work. And these two settlement houses basically gave their programs away. They transitioned their contracts, they transitioned their teams, they gave them their space and they said, here, run the clinic. And it wasn't a huge amount of money to actually do the work. It was like a $25,000 deal, but it totally changed how those organizations operated and it allowed organization C, which took on the other mental health clinics, to become a much larger player in this space to really grow and deepen and gain capacity in that program. And the others stabilized and were able to reinvest in primary care, which is where their heart was in the beginning. I love that. I love it. So it's really about strategery, as they would say, but also I think what you said at the beginning is really resonating with me, which is de-emotionalizing it and destigmatizing this idea of mergers and acquisitions as a failure. It's just, it's just strategery. All right, let's jump into questions. What about the great reset, the great resignation, i.e. EDs moving around or retiring? Does a vacuum at the top create merger opportunities? Absolutely. Succession planning drives about a third of all the deals that we see overall. And I think, quite frankly, we're in a place where 
oftentimes the person who is best suited to run a nonprofit that has a leadership gap is already running another. And so we see these deals happen all the time where leaders are so moved by the mission and see these opportunities that they just want to bring their organizations along. I think succession is going to drive a lot more, particularly as we see boomers really jump out into retirement. Yeah. I mean, it's so interesting because I do think the talent issue, something we're seeing all over the place. And every day of the week, I see EDs retiring or moving on. And the number of ED jobs that get sent to my email, it's like incredible. We also see it, we see it in the finance piece also. Oftentimes, nonprofits don't need a lights out CFO 100% of the time. They need that person 30% of the time. And so we're seeing organizations start to talk to each other about sharing a finance back office because that's where they need to invest. And if they put their money together, they can create an opportunity to recruit someone who is much more talented than they might have been able to do on their own. Well, and I think that's true with development directors. I mean, as DODs are hard to find, and if you have a smaller organization, you may not actually be able to afford the kind of salary that would attract the type of talent that you need. So just shout out there. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the fundraisers. Jillian, jump in here, friend. What's your question? Great. Thank you so much, Jess. This has been really, really awesome. I'm interested to just delve in a little bit more into the role of third parties. First, just when to engage them in the process. I imagine as early as possible as probably behooves every organization. But if you could just speak a little bit more to that type of process and the types of roles that you've seen third parties play. Of course, we know most traditionally of legal counsel, but I imagine there are a lot of other skill sets that can come into play. And then Further to that, I'm interested if, if you have any insight into the role or benefits versus challenges of mutually engaged third parties, where both organizations come together and bring someone in to support the process versus, or perhaps in addition to unilaterally engaging a third party to really represent one's own interests. Yeah, so that's a great question. So let's look at it from the world of who do you need on your bench and particularly frame it in the all of this work happens while your organizations are also doing their day-to-day, -day, right? So EDs are still running their organizations. Finance people are still looking at the books. Your board members are still doing their regular duties. So there's a whole ecosystem of third parties that come in to support this work. There are lawyers, which everyone needs on either side. There are people to integrate HR systems, integrate IT systems cultural integration facilitators, all of those people are necessary. But I think the most important role that we see time and time again is for someone or a firm to come in and facilitate conversations between the organizations. And Jillian, you got it right on the head. Having that person be mutually retained is incredibly important because that person is there not to work for one side or the other, but to work for the deal and their role is really to facilitate decision-making, whether it's yes or no. And so a lot of funders, us included, will make grants to cover half the cost of that person and say the other 50% or sometimes it's, sometimes it's less, find a way to split it between the two nonprofits in a way that feels equitable so that everyone feels as though this person works for them. Where do you find these people, Jess? Like you're talking about Called the honest broker. Are they just out there in the world? Like, where do we find these people? So you call Team C Change, but also you go to Sustained Collaboration. 
So stainedcollab.org, there are, a, geography doesn't exist anymore. Let's just acknowledge that. So there are a bunch of people around the country who do this work. They're former executive directors, they're former CFOs. They're just people who have been in this space and are around to facilitate these transactions because they believe it's an important part of capacity building. So good to know. All right, Jess, as we wrap up here, I have two last questions. So I've been asking this question, which is sort of fun. If you had a billboard, a metaphorical billboard that you could communicate anything that you wanted to the world, what, what might be on your billboard? Oh my God, I'm gonna hold up this post-it note, which has been on my computer forever. It says ruthless self-honesty. Like I think we're in a place, especially after the last two years, where if you can't be honest with yourself about what you want to do, what you love, who you want to spend your time with, what you want to spend your days doing, and what are we doing it for? So ruthless self-honesty in your work, in your personal life, with your relationships. I work on it every day. Well, on that note, you, you have some interesting transitions coming up. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. So big plug to see change. Please call them if you've got any, any questions about this work. But I am at the end of June going to be looking for my next opportunity. I think it's, I've done the best work of my life here. And now I'm ready to, to do something, to take this bag of tricks to a new set of challenges and try to keep to my core mission of let's get more people access to more opportunities with the resources that make them count. Well, you heard it here, folks. Jess Cavanero is hot property. So we're going to make sure to put your LinkedIn in the show notes for folks who I know are going to want to get in touch with you. Anything else that, that we should know as we sign off, Jess? Look, I think this work is hard and it takes a lot of time, but if thoughtfully planned, there's a bunch of resources out here and a bunch of people ready to support nonprofits who are eager to work together or alone to do more good work. So please reach out. Awesome. Thank you so much, Jess. This is so fun. And so full of gems. I, I learned so much. So thank you so much. Thank you. And talk to you soon. Have a good week, everyone. Thanks. Take care. Be well.